When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I've had um, a bit of a laundry incident that I feel I need to share with you today, Lorraine. Not if it's boring, Trish. No. <laughs> Don't bore me. You know that was a crime in my book. It was quite a surprise, shall we say. It's going to start off quite boring, but I think it'll get better. It begins with a missing sock. So one of my socks went missing when I was doing that. And I'm very careful about my socks because I can't bear all the lost socks Oh, my God, call Interpol. Oh, it's just a nightmare. But I'm like, they can all lose their socks, but I am not losing my very nice little... Go on, getting boring, losing you. Right, okay. So anyway, hanging at the washing, a sock has gone missing. I'm like, I know that sock went into the washing machine. It's either been eaten by the washing machine, don't know. Anyway, about a month later, put my swimming costume on this morning. It was in the gusset of my swimming costume. I was like, what is all that bulging? What is that bulging? And I had to have a rummage and it was it was the rummage in your gusset. Rummage in the gusset. That's the title of your biography, isn't it? That's the book we want to read about Trish Halpin, isn't oh, it? A exactly. Exactly. These things are sent to try us, aren't they? They're yes. small but incredibly yes. irritating. Anyway, I was able to reunite it with its comrade, which is what my mum used to call the socks. Like if there was a sock, Mr. Oh, the, where's the comrade of that sock? And it was the most unexpected thing because she wouldn't even probably have known much about what the Communist Party was. No. <laughs> about comrades. Anyway, so there much we are. to unpack there, there Trish. Socks but we Gusses. don't have time. Comrades all in one go. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Trish Halpin. And I'm Lorraine Candy. And we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Trish and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whatever time of the day you are listening to this, it might even be in the middle of the night if you're wide awake, thanks to a, a hot flush or a snoring partner. We thank you for downloading this week's episode and hope you find it helpful, relatable, and that it puts a little smile on your face wherever you are and whatever you're doing. You always put a little smile Aww. on my face, Trish. <laughs> Usually because you're being a bit silly. And we do think, actually, that it is important to be a bit silly in midlife. We can't just be superwoman. I mean, I can, obviously, but the rest (laughs) of you can't be superwoman all the time, no matter how much society expects of us. I think even J-Lo has to wake up next to a uh, snoring a-lister lying mm. next to her don't you yes. she's probably got gusset issues to deal with as well <laughs> sure. <laughs> i mean all that do. pole dancing for god's wow. sake imagine if she stepped up to do that with a sock and a gusset <laughs> wouldn't it <laughs> I think all of that has to be one of life's biggest equalizers, doesn't it? So no matter how Hollywood you are, there will no doubt be snorting and snoring, vibrating throughout those Beverly Hills, won't there? But let's get back on track by telling everyone what we've got planned for the next hour or so. Yes. Okay. Well, first up, we are going to be talking to our special guest. Um, This time, we have got best-selling author Freya North, who's got a new novel out called Little Wing after a five-year break. We haven't heard from her for five years. Big, big writer. Mm -hmm. She's going to be telling us about solo parenting, dating in your 40s and 50s, and the challenges and joys of creating the lifestyle she dreamed of since childhood. Mm, And in How to Win at Midlife, we're going to be asking if the events of the last few years have created an epidemic of teen anxiety. And uh, we've asked the experts for some practical ways to help, as well as how to live with a child who is going through it. First, though, Trish, um, we're going to share some updates from our fabulous private Facebook group, aren't we? I'm going to kick Mm -hmm. off with some of the brain fog bloopers because these are great. (laughs) There's a whole book in these. I mean... We've all done it. We've all, it's debilitating sometimes. Yeah, and we do laugh at it. We laugh at it because it is a bit frustrating um, and we have to add humour to these things. But the, the madness occurs. Mm. I've got this wonderful um, post that sort of is nitwittery in the extreme from Marinda. She says, on 
Friday, I popped to Wicks to buy a smoke alarm before my night shift. As I left the shop, the sliding doors closed behind me, so I pulled out my car keys from my pocket and I pressed the lock button to lock Wicks. <laughs> so mad, isn't it? <laughs> Hashtag away with the fairies. I mean, that's we're all. I'm always doing that. Yeah. Just trying to lock things that don't. I called my husband on my phone the other day to ask him where my phone was. If he'd seen. <laughs> That's a true story. That is really, really silly, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, that is nitwittery. Well, meanwhile, Helen had a a classic one. She says, I have just spent well over 20 minutes searching for my earrings. The full house ransack included upending my makeup bag on the bathroom sink edge in front of a mirror, which, had I looked up, would have told me that they were already in my ears. (laughs) Is it just me? Well, no, it's definitely not just you, Helen, because the other day I accused Neil of uh, stealing my glass and he just pointed at my head and of course <laughs> there they were perched you remember the lady who t- who wanted to take the shoes back to the shop because yes. they were too small and she she got there and handed over an empty box because she was wearing the shoes oh, it was <laughs> her daughter small. her daughter was wearing <laughs> them she'd it. gone to school in them exactly oh my goodness oh, oh my man. goodness um we've had some good nostalgia noodles this is the thing we do at the end of the show when we remember back in time to um our youthful days jane posted a fantastic picture of all her old dolls from childhood and she wrote my mother is clearing out her loft and said I had to take my much-loved dolls with their funky original 70s outfits two Pippa dolls a rather hunky Pete in his Bay City Rollers outfits he married a different Pippa every week in our house three Cindy dolls the middle one definitely looking (laughs) menopausal We had not heard of Barbie. We did have Cindy, a dressing table and a wardrobe. And I was always jealous of my best friend who had the horse. Cindy and her horse. Always something to crave. Something else. I didn't do the dolls. I think I had one. I think I've talked about this in a nostalgia. Nicola with the brown hair. Nicola brunette. Did you have any dolls, Trish? Well, I did. But I think we should just take a moment to describe the one that's looking a bit menopausal. Because obviously (laughs) listeners won't be able to. She is wearing yellow flares, a sort of brown, multicoloured, very 70s kind of shirt tabardy situation. And it's the hair, the the thinning hair. Unfortunately, this city's locks are a little bit uh, less than lustrous. She's holding a giant carving knife and looking (laughs) rageful as well. I have to say it's a fabulous collection. And um, I think, you know, if you haven't seen it, do, do pop on the Facebook group because it's such a fun oh, and supportive community, isn't it? And you are all very welcome. We just ask that you answer a couple of easy peasy questions as it really helps us to get to know you. Nobody else will see those answers, only us as moderators. And um, also understand what you hope to get from the group. So for example, when Lucy joined, she told us, I work in a fairly male dominated environment. And as a head gardener, I work outside. So often don't have a supportive environment around me. I'm hoping to feel the warmth of midlife female energy and also contribute as a woman who works with her hands oh love lucy she can tell yeah, me what's that's happening lovely, to my it? succulent yeah. that's taking a, <laughs> yes. taking a turn for the worst um we also had lots of members on the group who are experts um and they share their knowledge um and expertise this is what wendy told us she hoped to contribute to the group as a nurse i see women on a daily basis who are struggling with symptoms of perimenopause i hope i can perhaps provide a little bit of advice at times to women who don't know where to turn if they are struggling i won't offer medical advice but i can signpost them to services hopefully as a woman in the midst of perimenopause myself i'm hoping to share and learn too well thank you wendy and we echo wendy's point ourselves don't we mm-hmm. we're not experts um so you should always get proper professional um medical advice for any of the issues you want to describe but we can point you in the right direction and actually on the podcast now we're at season five we have interviewed so many experts so we can probably point you back to episodes that can answer your question immediately Yes, but it, you are a genius, though. Lorraine. Oh, I'm so always everybody remembers genius. that. That's I do okay, know, isn't it? Yes. Everything about everything, <laughs> as you know, Chris. Apart from socks and gussets, you have to gen up on that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's guest is the author Freya North, who shot to prominence in 1996 with her debut book, Sally, and has since garnered a devoted audience of Gen X readers who can't get enough of her domestic dramas, featuring family and personal struggles alongside a healthy dose of raunch and romance in titles such as Pillow Talk and The Turning Point. Her original career plan to be an art historian was shelved the day she was trying out a new computer and just started writing what would turn out to be the opening chapter of a novel. I was just full of stories, she says, modern day fairy tales, and I'm unapologetic about that. In 2010, at the age of 43, Freya separated from her partner of 11 years, the father of her children, Felix and Georgia, and said goodbye to her London life, moving as a single parent to a small rural farm in Hertfordshire, which she set about renovating and creating the lifestyle that she dreamed of living since childhood, featuring land, horses, dogs, and even her own little flock of sheep too. Despite loving her new country life, she hit a rocky patch after the unexpected end of a relationship, as well as recovering from a back operation. And this led to a breakdown and a five-year writing hiatus. But as with her novels, Freya has now written her own happy ending, Finding Love Again, and this month releasing her 15th novel, Little Wing, inspired by her visits to the island of Harris in the Outer Hebrides. She says, sometimes when you're at your most vulnerable, you're bizarrely equipped with that tiny little bit of something that an Enables you to go for it. And we're delighted to be talking to her today about what it means to start again in midlife and finding the energy and the resilience to act on that tiny little bit of something. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife, Freya. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me along. And we should also say, and welcome back, Freya, the novelist, because we were so pleased to hear that you were back with a book. Because Lorraine and I had actually been saying, what's happened to Freya? North, we don't know where she's gone, what she's doing, you know, and you're a name that we've sort of had all throughout our publishing careers, because obviously we're the same age, your amazing career success you had through the 90s and the 2000s. Um, but you've been missed. I wanted to say. And how does it feel to be back? It feels lovely, but slightly nerve wracking as well. I've had writer's block, very bad writer's block caused by a number of different issues. But I've written what I believe to be the book of my career. And now on the eve of publication, I'm feeling very nervous, very apprehensive. It's sort of dominating the excitement that I used to feel because it's like I've been hibernating away on my little farm in Hertfordshire. And suddenly um, I feel I'm about to step out in a pair of high heels, proverbially speaking, <laughs> into the big wide world again. Mm-hmm. Well, an awful lot has happened in your life. Um, when Trish and I were kind of researching, you know, where you started, where you went and this new book, it's had great reviews, this book, actually, already, it must be said, Little Wing. But Talk us a little bit about your life in the last decade, because this is this is the bit we're interested in, the midlife um, years. You left London, went to live in the country. How did that work? How? Because I know a lot of people now are listening, thinking, oh, I'm going to leave London. I'm going to go and live in the country. That's the dream. How did you find that? Talk, Talk us through that a bit. Well, although I'm born and bred a Londoner, but my heart has always been in the countryside, if that doesn't sound too cliched. And there was a stage in 2009, I had a lot of life changes. I split up with the father of my two children, they were six and four at the time. I just decided that if I didn't make a fresh start, I would somehow feel obliged to wait for the children to finish school before I felt that I could make a fresh start. And therefore I kind of thought I need to do it now. It's a good time to do it. And I think bizarrely, sometimes when you're in those periods of extremis in your life, it's then that you you can make big momentous decisions. Usually when things are just tickety-boo, you just keep the status quo. But I just felt I'm going to do it. I'm going to move out to the countryside. I had a quote from Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston, Jonathan Livingston Seagull floating around in my mind, which is that you're not given a dream without the power to fulfill it. So I up sticks 
and went from a very nice house on the borders of Muswell Hill and Alexandra Park to farm down a lane with no mains fuel, no mains <sighs> sewage. <laughs> and in fact, when we moved in, there was only half a roof. And oh then we goodness. ran out of fuel and it was very cold and we all slept in the one bed in our clothes and the children thought it was an amazing adventure. And I just thought, what the heck have <laughs> I done? And you, you did it as a single parent as well. So you had responsibility for them and their happiness and their lives, as well as your kind of fresh start as well. And it clearly wasn't without its challenges because you had all of this work to do on the place. How did you make it work? How did you set about thinking, I'm going to make this work and creating friends, a community, etc.? I have to say that the local school where my children went to, old fashioned values and the playground backed onto a field of cows, That was my absolute saviour because the community was so amazing and welcoming. And actually also running out of fuel two days after I moved in um, was great for meeting the neighbours because they heard about this peculiar woman who just (laughs) moved in and they all came round with fan heaters and, you know, oil radiators. So that was a lovely thing as well. And I just decided, I suppose, to say yes, thank you to people, which was a new thing for me to do rather than just feel I had to do everything myself. If somebody was offering me something, I would just say, yes, thank you. I do remember a few months in, one of the teacher's assistants at school said to the kids, I'm going to get your mum to help with the village panto. I said, yes, thank you, thinking that I'd be handing out leaflets, not realising actually I'd be treading the boards as it had in himself. (laughs) You were a single parent, though. I mean, for our listeners who, you know, many women are going through that, shall I stay or shall I go? feeling particularly in midlife after long relationships what advice have you got looking back on becoming a single parent I think I got to the stage where I truthfully thought it is better to be on my own than to be feeling so desperately alone with someone else and I think that was Mm. the crux really you know that it possibly sometimes you feel oh it's just easier to stay together but I don't think I've ever felt as lonely as in those final months and I think it was just the thought that I could be I suppose in charge of better times if I made a very difficult but informed decision it being it had become untenable for me to stay and therefore I had to go I also put my children first for a long time and just really focused on the sort of life that I wanted them to remember when they look back on this period and what about co-parenting because that that can often be a challenge can't it if a relationship might not have ended amicably it's really hard but I decided very early on that I wasn't going to do any slagging off or any blame appropriation and actually what I did do was quite soon after we moved into the farm I wrote to both my children I wrote to sort of their adult selves and I wrote down what it had been like and why I had made the decision that I made. And then I sealed the envelope. I addressed it to the two of them and I posted it and then I collected it from, you know, from the doormat and I, I put it away. But throughout the children's lives, when they have asked me questions, I really do believe that honesty is absolutely crucial to the relationship with your children but that I have not changed but adapted the details that I've given them according to the age they've been when they've asked Mm -hmm. so I don't want to overload them with information I don't want to um, frighten them or upset them so I've I've tempered the degree of detail and the words that I've used according to how old they've been and they've both known that this letter is there and I remember in fact my son when he finished his A-levels he's now almost 21 he said to me I want to read that letter now and I said to him you know what that's absolutely fine but you've just finished your exams you've got a week of partying and celebration so 
go off and do that and then you know come back to me and and ask me again and strangely enough it hasn't been asked for but I think both kids are kind of encouraged to know that there's something there should they want it um so that's kind of the way that I did it I wanted as well to be very honest within this letter about how I felt and how it felt to me, the feelings of worry and that I'd failed them somehow, but that I had felt that this was the most sensible thing to do for their emotional uh, welfare and for them to lead a life that was safe and secure and happy and vibrant. That's really interesting and really powerful. I've never heard of anybody doing that before, but it's it's very interesting, isn't it, that they haven't wanted to open them or maybe only once. Yeah. But that's, that's really interesting. And what about you? Because obviously, you know, after a breakup and you're focusing on your children and rebuilding this new life, but there comes a point, I'm assuming, where you want to start thinking about your own emotional well-being and what your needs might be and, you know, finding a new relationship. And you did, you started dating, you found a new relationship. Well, it took a long time. I was on my own for a good five years Mm -hmm. and I'm a romantic novelist. I really kind of wanted the whole, you know, getting swept off my feet and all of that. But it wasn't happening and there was a long time you know, years and years, especially because the kids were little and they'd be in bed by 8, 8.30. And then there were those long evenings when I would become acutely aware of what I would term my on my ownness. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't really loneliness or isolation. I just felt very on my own. And, you know, I stopped watching things like The Apprentice because I see no point watching something like that when there's nobody to turn to, mm-hmm. to enjoy, you know, scurrilous gossip about the show. I did feel very on my own. I didn't really want to do internet dating. It was mm-hmm. interesting because I had a lot of pressure from my friends. Oh, go on the internet, go on the internet. Mm-hmm. That's how everyone meets everyone these days. And I thought, well, I don't want to meet someone that way. And I thought, and anyway, what do you lot know? You're all telling me to do this. And you're the ones that are really happily ensconced in really good long-term relationships. Bugger off. (laughs) You know, I did humor them. And I went on a couple of dating sites. It was so horrific. Oh, God. (laughs) You know, being bombarded by, oh, my God, I remember one guy sending me, you know, unannounced into my inbox, a photograph of him, naked, sunglasses, with a gun. Oh, God. No, please no. You know, oh my God! Oh, the arrogance of men. <laughs> there was another chap that sent me a photo of himself, and then, and and then he sent me another photo of himself with a piece of paper on his head, in case I didn't like the first photo. And I just thought the me- the world is full, <laughs> absolutely unhinged men, and I don't want to meet any of them. I I did put my you know best and biggest brave pants on once Mm -hmm. or twice and went on a couple of dates but they were both disasters and this was you know back in the day and then I just kept away from it one guy first guy I met up with almost as soon as we'd sat down he just tore into his ex-wife and his ex-girlfriend yeah I couldn't get out of there quick enough the other guy that I met up with all he did was talk about cock long his cock his mate's cock even his oh my cock. god his dog was called oh my nobby oh my god <laughs> and this is I, this is someone you vetted he's already got through so the initial odd, stage it? it's so odd, <laughs> it's so odd it, yeah. it was horrific so you know for a long time despite my you know my daydreams and my dearest wishes and the things that i would pray so hard for or or chant for Mm -hmm. I just had to be single because it seemed to me even though on my ownness was so raw and could sometimes you know feel so overwhelming actually what was out there just seemed to be a ghastly um, alternative to that so it was like the lesser of two evils Mm -hmm. but you did find someone and you fell in love, sort of in love. It was a romantic, kind of high 
intensity thing and then you never heard from him again yeah I mean your life was quite extraordinary you were kind of thrown challenge after challenge after challenge weren't you and you I guess you describe it as a breakdown in 2016 just what what led to that and how did you feel about putting the energy into something that just disappeared we do hear this actually a lot from women who date men it's a beautiful thing that I now feel so able to talk about it Mm. hopefully lucidly because it's done, you know, it's far in the past, but at the time, it's what led to my writer's block as well. Yeah. You know, I had a very difficult situation on the farm. I rent out stables to help with the enormous outgoings that I accrue on the farm. But unfortunately, you know, there was a very bitchy clique of women down there that really made my life a misery. And around about this time, when I finally plucked up the courage to get them to go, to leave, you know, and I I had the farm back to myself. I tumbled headlong into, I don't know what you'd call it. Was it a love affair? It was more than a dalliance and it wasn't an affair because we were both single, but it was somebody that I knew and trusted. And it was one of those extraordinary periods in one's life when you are deeply heavily involved with someone you are at the epicenter of each other's universe it's a strange beautiful vibrant hermetically sealed bubble where colors are brighter and sounds are gorgeous you know the thing you know the thing it was just a magical magical summer until without warning I was ghosted he was done he'd had enough he was done he'd got what he wanted and I never heard from him again And that was really highly distressing and gave my already fragile sort of self-esteem an absolute walloping. It was it was really hard. And it took a long time for me to understand that it wasn't anything about me, Mm. you know, because for a long time I judged myself on the fact that I had been cancelled out. I had had a line not just drawn under me, but absolutely I'd been obliterated with somebody else's permanent marker. It was horrible. It took a a long time. Um, You know, it was definitely one of the catalysts of my breakdown, definitely. But, you know, I'm glad to say that through therapy and through really thinking about the bigger picture and working out what had happened to me and learning a lot more about the human condition other people's conditions as it were (laughs) that I came to see that ghosting is absolutely bang out of order it's immature it's cruel and it's inexcusable really to deny somebody else their voice their chance to even it's even if it's just to say goodbye Mm -hmm. you know that's just that's just not on what advice would you give to women who are going through this? I've interviewed several women for a book I'm writing about this and, and they've all had this experience. What advice would you give for women who are going through that now? How do you reframe it in your mind so you don't feel it's your fault? Time is going to take time because it really does um, lacerate your your self-esteem and your self-belief mm. and, you know, everything you thought of yourself. Because when you're in a passioned relationship with somebody you're you're soaring you're up there you know you feel expansive and and gorgeous and to suddenly be cancelled out you suddenly feel very small and full of self-doubt so I would say time talk all you want talk to your friends talk to the mirror um, I went into therapy, which I'm still in all these years later. I'll never not be in therapy. It's the best thing that I do every other week. Um, and know this, know this. It happens to a lot of people, not just from romantic involvement, but friends, work mm. colleagues, ghosting exists. And I think it's, you know, in the day and age of social media, of texting, WhatsApping. It's a coward's way out and you're not alone, but it's not about you. Do not judge yourself on the fact that you've been ghosted. Mm -hmm. Judge the other person. I mean, as women, we're expected to be able to 
put up with all of these things and deal with all of these things and kind of get on with it. But you'd obviously got to a point where where you couldn't and all of these things happened and you had writer's block, you needed to go into therapy. Obviously the therapy clearly has helped you and, and you've stayed with it. What else or who else got you through? So I think I realized quite early on that I needed to do the work. Therapy was amazing. It was revelatory and I could feel it helping from the get-go. And I had a very good dynamic with my counsellor. I came to see, I suppose, that therapy was really assisting with my um, intellectual understanding of depression, of breakdown, of being at a very, very low ebb. And it was helping me to deconstruct and then reconstruct, you know, the building blocks that make me me. But at the same time, I knew I was spending too much time, quite literally weeping. Hours of the day, curled up embryonically, just sobbing. And I knew that that wasn't right and that that wasn't really me. And I discussed it with my therapist and I discussed it with my GP. And we decided together that I would try antidepressants. I was very reluctant at first, not knowing what it was going to feel like, not wanting to feel not like me, but they described it as being that in the same way that counselling was really helping my intellectual understanding and uh, healing from depression and from my breakdown, so too antidepressants had a crucial role to play because the balances, the chemical balances can be so turned on the head and, you know, upended and really messed around with through um, depression, that antidepressants are really utterly marvellous at being able to redress that balance. And it only took about three weeks. I was terrified of feeling kind of zombified. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel manic. But actually, after about three weeks, I thought, ah, I feel a bit more like the old me. I'm not crying. I feel more capable about just walking through the days now. You know, I don't feel that I need to hide away in a little huddle. So I thought, you know, what else can I do? And actually also at this time, because of course we all love layers of shit to be thrown at us at exactly the same time. (laughs) Excuse my French, I'm very sorry. But at this time as well as all the other stuff going on, I needed quite a lot of back surgery and I was very very nervous about that and I was also in extreme physical pain Mm -hmm. really very bad pain and it was coming through the back surgery and working very diligently with my physiotherapist that I came to see how exercise and physical exertion Mm -hmm. oh my gosh they have the most huge part to play mm-hmm. in our mental well-being in our emotional fitness because you get flooded with endorphins they're mm-hmm. like a free high they're amazing they are the feel-good hormones and they're extraordinary so you know I really upped my um physical the physical mm-hmm. side of my life I've really kept that up ever since and so you know I now realize that I had the intellectual side being looked after with therapy I had the chemical side being rebalanced with antidepressants mm-hmm. I had the physical side and the endorphins and then I thought I need as well to do something for my soul that whole kind of mind body spirit yeah. concept of emotional robustness and you know I turned a lot of inward thinking outward through mindfulness and meditation Alexander technique and I realized then that I had my scaffold there were these four pillars it was like my scaffold and it protected me Mm -hmm. as I healed it was you know and I've become quite evangelical about Mm -hmm. it all so if you look at the timeline you've had a breakdown you're on antidepressants you're having therapy you took up cycling that was your exercise you took up pottery that was something you liked as well and then you'd had this relationship trauma as well but that is in your midlife so that's sort of between 40 and 50 at any point did anyone say to you do you think you might be perimenopause or do you think your hormones might be affecting what you're going through? Did, was that even part of your thinking? It wasn't. And I bloody wish it had been. Yeah. Um, probably from years before, you know, probably from when I left 
London when I was 42. And I wish, wish, wish that I had thought more carefully mm-hmm. about the possibility of yeah. perimenopause not helping the way that I was feeling and that there could have been other things that I could have done as well. How did it affect your parenting at this time? Because you're on your own, you you know, you are your children seeing you crying all day, every day in this kind of deep hole? I used to hide that. And um, my previous book that came out, The Turning Point came out just as I was going through all of this. It was a weird case of life imitating art because the character in The Turning Point goes through a period of deep grief. And I describe, and this was before any of this had happened to me, but I describe how she would go and quickly rush to the bathroom and literally stuff her face in a towel to try and cry as silently as she could. And I realized, you know, two years after I'd written the book that I was copying what that character Mm -hmm. did. So I would hide it from from the children. I didn't want them to worry. I didn't want them to worry. I didn't want my parents to worry. You know, I didn't want to talk about the writer's block to everyone because I felt a complete and utter failure. You told your agent and everybody you were fine, I'm getting on with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, you know, I used to look at the keyboard and irrationally fear that it would hurt to put my fingertips on the home keys. Mm -hmm. That kind of anxiety always has a very, very physical effect on me headaches gut ache fearing that things are physically going to hurt me like typing you know mm-hmm. which I kind of need to do because they won't accept manuscripts written no. by quill on parchment <laughs> these spoken into in, into your voice yeah. notes they don't like but it. I do remember you know I do remember taking the children to the school bus literally having the sort of desperation to get home because when you think you're going to throw up and you have to like rush to the loo, mm-hmm. it's like it, it was like that overwhelming feeling. I've got to get home so that I can cry. And oh. um, it was debilitating. Mm-hmm. It was debilitating. Well, we're so glad you've come through the other side and uh, are here today as well to talk about Little Wing, which is oh. this is the book. Oh you've described it, it as the most profoundly emotional book that you've ever researched and written. So, so tell us about that and, and how it came about. It's so strange because I can't actually believe that I wrote this book and I read back through it for my own pleasure, <laughs> not thinking, ha ha, you know, look at these clever syllables and adjectives that I've used, just because there's something about this story. It's like I channeled the thing. I know that sounds a bit, you know, fanciful, but it kept me sane, the writing of it during lockdown. But the mm-hmm. actual idea for the book came when I was healing from my back surgery and all the other things. And I was out in the Outer Hebrides researching another project entirely. And I'd gone for my first post-surgery run eight weeks after surgery Mm -hmm. on the quite extraordinary Luscantire Sands in Mm -hmm. the Isle of Paris. And it was so uplifting and such a massive emotional and mental and spiritual release to, to run again mm-hmm. and to be in this wild, wild, beautiful, almost frightening place because it's so, you know, at the mercy of the of the elements. And I just remember standing there thinking, what if I sent a character here? And then, although I couldn't write, ideas kept coming through. You know, what if this character is 16 and it's the late 1960s and she's pregnant and she's banished out here? How would she fare? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the island in, in the late 1960s didn't have electricity, didn't have an infrastructure of any type. And I thought, what if... 35 years later, there's somebody finally looking for her. And that was my springboard. Mm-hmm. And I I kept thinking about Harris. I kept looking back at my photographs and, you know, bought all the books that I could. And we just invest so much daydream time to it. And eventually, three years later, during the first lockdown, Mm-hmm. I wrote that book and that book was written in about four months flat. It wow. just mm-hmm. flew out of my fingertips and I would write myself empty every single day and then just 
feel myself refilling. It was, as a writer, Mm. the most magical experience I've had. It's my 15th novel. I've never experienced a novel like it. Mm -hmm. Oh, really, Freya? This is a massive tale of survival, isn't it, in in a way? You've come through so much in the last sort of 12, 13, 14 years. There is a happy ending, isn't there? Because you have found love in midlife in your 50s where are you now because your children have left homes you've been through that as well the book's out it's had great reviews you're in this lovely place aren't you it's really interesting Lorraine because what you say about it being a tale of survival that just it kind of makes me cringe and shrink away from it Mm. because there are people that go through such terrible terrible things and I almost feel embarrassed that I got so low so quickly. I don't know why I'm getting stuck for words here. I feel quite <laughs> emotional about it, but some shit happened to me and I got through it. And I'm 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 proud of myself that I got through it. And life is good at the moment. I'm writing another book. Life isn't straightforward. I found coming to terms with the empty nest very difficult because mm-hmm. being a single parent me and Felix and Georgia, we are a really tight little unit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is this house that I'm in without my children there? Mm. Why aren't they? Don't set me off. Don't (laughs) set me off. Why aren't they young adults? You know, why, Mm. why, you know, all the whys. But um, I found love again. And extraordinarily, I did get him off the internet. (laughs) It worked. Hurrah. I did get him off the internet. I went on um, the site Bumble Mm. where the onus is put on the woman to make the contact. And therefore, it's a nice type of bloke who doesn't want to pose naked in his sunglasses Mm -hmm. with his gun. Talk about his cock. (laughs) He's really happy. And in fact, my boyfriend's called Anthony. And what I loved about his photograph was it was mainly, it was him, but there was also his Jack Russell Terrier. So I just thought, yeah, I like, I like this dog. I'll give the owner five minutes chat and see what he's like. And we've been together about three and a half years now. And it's so lovely being with someone who's a grown up when it comes to mm-hmm. courtesy and emotional robustness and somebody who is genuinely interested in the health of our minds. And it's just great to have somebody that I can really talk to on so many different levels, as well as somebody who makes me roar with laughter. <sighs> You know, oh, he, sounds like, <laughs> he sounds like a keeper, Freya. He definitely does. He's a keeper. <laughs> He's a keeper. Oh, well, we're so pleased for you. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on bringing up two wonderful children and the book. Congratulations on Little Wing, which is out now. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. This week for our How to Win at Midlife section, we're talking teens and how to parent them well during what could be a super stressful year. Trish and I have four teens between us, and we know that this particular start to the year is perhaps going to be trickier than most. All our teens are back full time at school after the pandemic and no doubt still suffering emotionally from the chaos that lockdown brought to their learning. On top of that, this year, many are facing mock exams for the first time in school situations. They're delving into revision for real exams after being denied exams before, and it's such a lot of change for them. I've also got a 10 year old sitting her mock sats and her final sats so there's a lot of talk of exams at home and there's a kind of sense I think that we're dealing with a lot of knock-on anxiety for these young minds as they developed through a pandemic they're also coping with so much physical change in the way they are taught in schools it's a lot for the teenage brain to deal with and we know levels of anxiety in fact there's a report out this morning about the levels of anxiety rising among this age group so I've talked to a few experts and some mums um, to see how we can support our teenagers at this time. I just want to say, though, this is not a 10 point guide to stopping stress and anxiety, because these feelings of stress and anxiety, these negative feelings are actually good for teenagers. This is how you build up resilience in young minds. So we do need to get our heads around that as a parent. It's a concept I've talked about a lot before in my book, but there are some things that you can specifically do. And this is a little roundup coming. Trish, how are your twins Mm. dealing with their sixth form experience? Because they're going to be 18. And then this year, they're going to leave home. So 
So mm-hmm. that whole university thing. Um, and they've just come out of a pandemic with all of that that they've dealt with. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, for both of them, there's this sort of huge sense of we don't know how to do exams because they didn't mm. do their GCSEs. And one of them was really pleased with their assessed GCSE results and the other one wasn't. And I agree that some and I think that some of their marks were were kind of a little bit unfair, but that was just the roll of the dice, mm. wasn't there? And it, it was really sort of, you know, disempowering for them, which I thought was really difficult. And they kind of been left feeling a little bit like they don't trust the system and all the disruption, yeah. the and teachers I think that there's also as you were saying the kind of brain development staff uh, who are they where do they belong and you know feeling okay with who they are and for girls in particular in their world where image and status among yeah. their peers is a big pressure so I'm just feeling a little bit like there's a lot to sort out before they go off in September you know if they go off to university which is um, the choice that they're kind of making at the moment and then when one of them said they might not I was a bit like oh no I think you should <laughs> So it's that it's hard. Yeah, it is hard. It's trying to work out what's right for them, trying to support them. But I think quite often if you've got a bit of a stressy, anxious teen in the house, they're probably being a bit horrible to everybody else in the house. And I think it's that where do you draw the line between, um, you know, trying to support and be the thing that they push against, but also not putting up with the, you know, the rude behaviour or whatever. But I know you've spoken to lots of experts. I I think you've got some advice for me, haven't you? And for our listeners. Yeah, because I'm doing a little festival actually later on um, in the month around this very thing. This and, and we're, we're doing it, holding it for teachers. It's to help um, cope with the mental health of young people. Now, summer's going to be really important, obviously, for them because that's their kind of reset before the next big thing. I've got a 18-year-old, just turned 18, and a 15-year-old son, and I've obviously got the 10-year-old, and then my 20-year-old is in this deep in year two of university. So they're all a lot more jangly, perhaps, than they would have been without the pandemic. Um, Mm And the top tip, and my goodness, this is going to be hard for parents, and it's Mm -hmm. the one that all the experts talk to me about. And actually, we had a talk from the headmaster of our 10-year-old school about our SATs for the 10-year-old, but the top tip is to step back and support them with nourishing behaviours rather than getting physically involved Mm. in the practicality of what they're doing. So it is not about you helping them do their timetables, their exam timetables. It's not about you sitting down and checking on them. Have you done, how much have you done today? It's really about you making a cup of tea and bringing it into Mm -hmm. their room. It's really about you listening to them. You know, he said it because there were so many questions from parents. Can I do this? What can I download? How can I do it? And this was about 10 year olds. So imagine the heightened level for GCSEs and A levels. But that's not that's not going to be helpful to them at all. You've really Mm -hmm. got to kind of step back. Every education expert I've spoken to has said that. I had this with my son who's 15. I just thought he's not doing any homework. He's not Mm -hmm. revising for any of his stuff because he seems to be doing it at 10 o'clock at night on his bed in his pants. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Actually, when we had parents evening, he's fine. He's doing fine. Now I nearly stepped in and said, right, I'm going to do a program for you. But he's fine. That would have been very bad for his mental health. Can I just say there, though, because I've had the experience um, where one of mine was like not wanting to go in and there was mm, something mm. there was something clearly wrong and and they'd actually got really overwhelmed with the organization yeah. and with so I did actually step in and help and but coordinated it with her tutor yeah so and, that's the point I'm gonna make if before you step yeah. in talk to their educators yeah. talk to the yeah. school talk exactly. to whoever's responsible for pastoral care get that side of it first before mm-hmm. you step in as a parent and when you step in ask them how can I possibly help yeah, you exactly what would be them. the most helpful yeah. thing for you rather than setting the guidelines and saying right this is what worked for me a thousand years ago or this is what it says online that I must do so I think that's a really um, important note talk to the educators first communicate ask them to communicate what they want that's kind of the main thing main thing and I would say it's all about short bursts that seems to be the overriding that everything they do should be short bursts of focus mm-hmm. and then they should be able to relax I think there is something the, the google calendar is quite good you could tie that up together if you're talking about exam revision and get them to look at that and the, the main things though are water so that mm-hmm. their brains function because they really need to be hydrated and sleep so water 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 sleep 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 so letting them have the lions at the weekend letting them relax in the evenings not making them come and do you know really got to back off at this point I think Um, and letting them lead is this sort of concept of pot plant parenting and it's also that thing that Philippa Perry told us and I would urge people to listen to that episode Mm -hmm. feel with don't deal with Mm -hmm. 
if you do see these anxiety levels rising and you do feel the need to talk to an expert, you can obviously take them to your GP, which is a, a little bit hit and miss. But there are a few things that I was offered as advice, mm-hmm. apart from sort of gentle, active listening and always side by side conversations, never face to face. We know teenagers don't like that. But one of the things I spotted um, was there's a coach, teen coach called Maria Evans and journaling um, and this mm-hmm. has come up again and again is actually really helpful for teenagers it's not a magic pill for them but writing things that they feel down privately to them and getting it out is really helpful from a neurology point mm-hmm. of view so you could encourage your teenagers to do that they could show you they could not show you they can put it in a uh, box under the bed they can put it in a jam jar but they're really moving those feelings somewhere else so that's mm-hmm. very helpful for them sleep obviously is the kind of that they got less all the surveys show they got less sleep during the pandemic we also do the digital sunset and i think that's really important lots of adolescent mental health back that up phones not in their bedroom at night time mm-hmm even Mm -hmm. up to the age of 18. If you can do that during the week, it just gives them a little bit of a break. Um, It will create a bit of a bad atmosphere. It's the only thing I'm kind of feel fairly strongly about, but it does give them um, a slightly different mindset when they wake up in the morning. Now, the upside of anxiety before we all worry about it, because they're talking about it, which is a really good thing, is that it is okay to feel anxious. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And it might not be anxiety. So that's a very you know, it's a very loaded word. You might not feel, you might not have anxiety. You might be sad. You might be worried. You might be nervous. So encouraging them to use other words yeah. to describe it is helpful to get them to talk about the feelings. And it really calms them down from a neurological point of view. They can mm. just say, oh, I've got anxiety. I've got stress. And they kind of can use it, mm. that language, you know, if they're just trying to get out of doing something. And again, it's just trying yeah. to find the line between if they don't want to take responsibility for something or don't want to go to something that they've committed to and it's like, oh I'm too stressed I'm too anxious and I just sort of I wonder how you deal with that kind of well thing. you if you if you say then you don't have to do it that being the simple discussion mm. then you're absolutely reinforcing the anxiety you're saying yeah. okay so you, if you make them or you encourage mm-hmm. them or you explain that they do on this occasion have to do it mm-hmm. what their brain is learning is actually I did that and it was okay it was okay so yeah facing so whatever if it was an anxiety they've faced it and dealt with it yeah it's really if it wasn't they they've that. had to take the responsibility that they committed to Oh, that's that's helpful. Great. And that also they are going to feel bad feelings and you can't take those feelings away. Mm -hmm. And actually Mm -hmm. feeling bad feelings, being stressed, sad, worried is a good thing. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's an early warning system, anxiety, that there might be a threat or something in front of you that you're going to find hard to deal with. But once you've dealt with it, you know, every therapist I spoke to in adolescent mental health states pushed them forward to deal with it. So when your teenager says, I don't want to come out of my bedroom, I don't want to go outside, I don't want to walk the dog. Those are little things that they must do. Um, because mm-hmm. otherwise you're reinforcing it's okay to okay. be yeah. anxious. There are some really small things, I think, that help. We, <laughs> You know, favourite meals. It's really, you know, these are tiny mm-hmm. little bits, pop mm-hmm. plant parenting again, games. Um, we always play a lot of games mm-hmm. in the house. There's a really wonderful Facebook thread, actually, which I'll put up on our Facebook of parents of teenagers support group in the States where they've listed hundreds of games they play oh, when they're teenagers. Yeah, not feeling that's really good. Great. It's a sort of nurturing and nourishing, isn't it? And that's what it's you rituals. can do as a, a parent, yeah. Yeah. yeah, when they were little, you had lots of rituals. You tend mm-hmm. to lose it as they become teenagers. Bringing the rituals back makes them feel really, really safe. So, mm, you know, that cool. favourite meal, the, the the cup of tea you sit and chat, just, just introducing tiny rituals. They might take a while um, to stick, but it's mm-hmm. a really good thing. Um, there is a website called the Positive Parenting Coach, Anita Clare, and I've spoken about her before, but there's a, there's a survey on there called the Values in Action Survey, which you could get your teens to do, and it really brings out in them what they really like and what they enjoy and perhaps when you're giving them that enjoyment that hobby to balance out any of the the work at school you can work out really what they want to do and another thing that someone suggested to me which I think is really great actually is what we call mental health days off so I did this recently with one of my teenagers she just it was a lot of work she did an exam it was a lot of revising it was relentless Mm -hmm. all week she's kind of overdone it she'd done too many and she just woke up one morning she looked terrible and she said I just don't think I can go in and I said well let's say that this term you have three mental health days okay let's let today be one of them so Mm -hmm. this is you you don't need your phone I'm just going to let you sleep and I'm going to look after you like a small child today like a baby and actually by the end of the day she felt so much better and 
then had a much better night's sleep. There is a digital parenting coach as well. She's at the digitalparentingcoach.com, Elizabeth. She has a really brilliant list of how to work out how screens are affecting them and what they're seeing on social media. Young Minds has a 9.30 to 4pm hotline for parents if they want to ring about the mental health of their kids under 25. And The Mix has group chats that you can join as a parent to talk about what's going on or your teenagers can join if they're feeling overwhelmed. We will put all of this on the Facebook group, but there are places to go, but just relax I think is the the main key, isn't it, Trish? Yes. Oh, that's so helpful. I found that helpful. I've got some strategies now and things that I'm going to do. So thank you for that. It's nostalgia noodle time. And Lorraine, you've got quite a quite an important one. Yes. It's a landmark year. Yes. Important in your life. It's pertinent to us all, both Mm. of us. And I'm sure Mm. for our listeners, British Cosmopolitan is 50 (gasps) years old this January. Actually, no, it's March, 1972, March. March. Oh, my I have written a little bit. All the editors that are around have written a piece for it. Still alive. (laughs) Still going. I was the uh, editor of Cosmopolitan. Were you the best editor of Cosmopolitan? I was a double BSME editor of the year, award-winning editor of Cosmopolitan, obviously. Um, I've just looked at the cover from 1972. Michael Mm. Parkinson talks about his vasectomy, the most beautiful thing a man can do for a woman about that age i was a sleep around girl oh you You wrote that didn't you a slag i was a slag i don't like that word (laughs) but they could have used it i know it was just (laughs) i mean it was absolutely groundbreaking launched by helen Gurley brown um in the states um long before 1972 it was a global brands it dominated mm, the magazine mm-hmm. market so campaigning um the british one ran all these campaigns to get more women in parliament equal yeah. pay abortion rights it just really brought real women ordinary yeah. normal everyday women like you and me all the information they needed but it was i also thought it was very funny and one thing i did found as i was sort of googling around is that when helen Gurley brown said you know we could have it all which has been yes. an issue for all of us oh, Jenna, i think i know about this just what she meant out. No, but what she meant mm. was love, sex, money. That's what we could have. Not yes. we could have a family and a job. Mm. And we just weaved it, got misinterpreted. Oh, misappropriated. Misappropriated yes. into yes. another place. Anyway, I loved my time at Cosmo. Oh. It was one of my happiest editing oh. days. We used to get sent boxes and boxes of vibrators. They were <laughs> enormous in those days. Huge Jessica Rabbit things I think we're not going back to Cox again (laughs) how have you managed but anyway I just wanted to in my nostalgia noodle wish Cosmo happy yes yes and long may it rain long may we want we love magazines last man standing I feel So, Trish, I've got an inkling of your nostalgia noodle, which is couldn't really be more different no, from mine, could it? Where no. have you gone back? What well, do I don't remember? think this would have featured in Cosmopolitan. Uh, Muppet soap, novelty soap. Miss <laughs> Piggy was in Cosmo, oh, I think. Oh, <laughs> gosh. The reason being, love the Muppets, was that I was driving to my dear old dad's the other day and I passed the parade, because it was a parade. Do you remember the parade of yes. shops up yeah. around the corner? We were going up around the corners, what we used to say. And there was one of those really lovely old-fashioned chemists there, you know, with all the yeah. sort of, you know, glass desks and mahogany yeah. drawers and all sorts of lotions and potions, mainly yardly and old ladies. But I remember popping in there one day and seeing the most spectacular, most exciting thing I'd ever seen. This, I am, was about the age of nine. Muppet soaps. <laughs> Novelty. It's so What did you get, Kermit? I got, well, I bought them for friends for Christmas presents because obviously they were cheap and cheerful. Uh, Fuzzy Bear. Kermit and Miss Piggy, I think. But I think who's your favourite Muppet? Oh, Miss Piggy. Oh no, Kermit, Miss Piggy, Animal. I don't know. Animal's my favourite Muppet. I don't think they did a a soap of Animal with his drum kit. That would be quite interesting. (laughs) Anyway, googling, woogling. Um, seven ninety nine on eBay. Very old, ninety seven. Can you imagine how good they'll be for your skin? Oh yeah, you don't want to put that anywhere near your your (laughs) you know your sensitive bits, do you? Gossip. Oh no. 
brings us to the end of this week's Postcards from Midlife. Uh, new episodes will be available to listen to every Sunday on your podcast provider. And we'd really appreciate it if you can make sure to download your episodes because that means that they count on our listener numbers. And if you could rate and review us too, that would be amazing. And please tell your friends about us. We want as many women as possible to join in with this midlife conversation. Uh, that's what our private Facebook group is all about. So if you're not a member yet, do head over and join up. And you can use it to post any feedback on the topics we discuss, as well as suggestions for other things you'd like to hear talked about or celebrities and experts you'd love to hear interviewed. Or you can email us at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com and even pop a little message on the Instagram. Goodbye. Goodbye. 